All right, church. Well, it is good to just be in the pulpit once again. And if you have a Bible or scripture journal, I encourage you to find your way to the book of Genesis, that very first book in the Bible or your scripture journal, and find your way over to chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, that should be on page 8, if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles around the room. And if you do not have an ESV Bible, or, or a, a Bible for that matter, um, and ESV is just a, the English translation that we use here, uh, feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. So we want to make sure that you have access to the Word of God. And don't, just, don't just take my word for it. We want you to see it for yourselves. All right, now as you are turning there and, and finding that, that spot in your Bible, uh, for many of you, I'd imagine you're probably going to recognize the heading that's above this chapter. And that is the Tower of Babel. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And I think for many of us in the room today, whether you actually grew up in church or not, you probably have some familiarity with this account, right? With this story. You know, and truthfully, I don't like to use the word story, and, and you'll, I'll use it, but it's not mythical, okay? We're not talking about, like, a, a fable. So even though it's a story, it's a historical account. But for many of you, you probably have some familiarity with this, right? You just know that there was this tower. You know that something happened. Maybe there's some language involved there. Well, when you have some familiarity with any type of story, any type of event, what the danger with that is is you can become almost lazy in not wanting to, to press in and go, yeah, I heard this growing up. I know everything about this. There's nothing that this could teach me today. Well, can I just tell you guys this? From taking time just to study this this week and to spend considerable amount of time just in this text, I was able to see things in here that I've never seen before. I got to see more of God's plan. I got to see more of his beauty. I got to see more of God kind of forecasting his redemptive work through Genesis 11 that I'd never seen before. And I'm hoping to be able to relay some of that information to you. Because not only are we going to look at the text at hand, right? We're going to spend some time in Genesis 11. But as we have been doing right through our whole uh, study of the book of Genesis is, I want you to read this or to look back at Genesis 11 as Christians. Or at least individuals, right, living in the time period in which we have, where we have the whole canon of Scripture. Right? We have a, a full and final Bible. So we can look back on Genesis and go, how does this story, how does this account actually fit into where God went throughout history and is continuing today? And what I want to do is also show you, and I've done this before, is how Genesis, the first book of the Bible, points to something that we'll see in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So we'll get there. In due time. Uh, one other thing I want to just mention before we, we pray is, even if you are not familiar with this story, or maybe you would say, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, I don't, I don't know where I stand, you know, with, with Christ or the Bible or Christianity in general. One is, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to come here for as long as you want. There's no pressure to believe something that you don't believe. However, 
what I do think that we will see is just a, a sober look at what does it look like to give your life to things that simply don't matter in the end. We're going to see that. And I think it's a great warning for all of us of what does it look like to give our life to something that really matters. Or maybe another way to put it is, what does it look like to live, try to live a life wanting all the benefits of God, but without actually having God? What does that look like? Those are some of the things we're going to look at. Because I think there's major consequences when we try to use God's resources and his purposes, but take him out of it. There's consequences for that. All right, well, let's go ahead and stop there. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for you. Uh, In particular, I'm going to pray for our kiddos. And as I'm praying, will you guys just pray for me? And then we'll jump into the text together. Well, Father, I want to just take another moment uh, just to, to pray, just to come to you. Because, God, I know, I know that we are in desperate need for you. Because, God, they don't, this church does not need my words. They need your words. It's your words that have the the power to save. Because, God, I know that I can get the word of God in front of all of them. right? I can direct them to your word. But Lord, I know it's ultimately you and you alone that gets the word of God into them, though, not just in front of them. Father, I also want to just pray for our kiddos next door. God, as they're, they're learning about this same account, and even their, their littlest hearts would see that, that they're in desperate need of you. And may this, this story of this tower and these these individuals just point them to you and your goodness and your gospel. And God, we pray all of these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> all right. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 11 in its entirety, including another genealogy. So I guess we're looking forward to that. There's not, no, no response there? Like, woo! And if I pronounce a name wrong... Um, Harry, I apologize, you know better than I do on, on these things, but in God's goodness, this is the word of God for us this morning. So, Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is not only the beginning of what they will do, And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building. They left off building the city. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of over, over all the earth. 
chapter 10, or verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Akrashad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Akrashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Akrashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Akrashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he entered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Norah, Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We are thankful for God's word. Even the genealogies, church. All of it. All right. So as I have discussed before, one of the most important aspects of studying the book of Genesis to take note is who is Moses, who's the author of this book, who is he originally writing to? Because that gives us some clues into, so why does he highlight certain things? Why does he use the language that he does? Because Moses is not just telling about how the world began, even though he is doing that. He's specifically telling this original audience, right, the Israelites, as they're going through the wilderness. This is what the book of Exodus is mostly about. Moses is telling them about who they are. Where did they come from? Why are they going to the place that they are going? Because remember... When, when Moses is leading this generation of people through the wilderness, at this point, the Israelites had been slaves for generations and generations and generations. So all they ever knew was slavery. All they ever knew, probably, was Egyptian mythology. And so Moses is teaching them, church. And maybe, like many of us today, for the first time, Teaching us 
how did the world begin? How did all these things that we know in this world, how did they come to be? And so we're, we're seeing Moses unpack this and highlight certain things. And that's what he's going to be highlighting this Tower of, of Babel. Now, last week, when I read through the genealogy of Genesis 10, which I know you guys thoroughly enjoyed, you made sure to tell me that afterwards, um, <clears throat> right, that was highlighting where all the nations came from, right? Where did all of these descendants of, of, of you know, Ham and Japheth um, and Shem, where did all of them go, right? Where did all those lineages go? How did it disperse? Chapter 10 is also known as the Table of Nations, now, there is a phrase in chapter 10 that I didn't highlight last week, but I want to draw your attention back to, because I think it's going to be important for us today. And that's verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31 of chapter 10, where we see Moses use the same phrase after each section of genealogy, where he says, By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations, categorizing the different people, the different nations. Now, I bring that up because what did we just read in chapter 11? Right? We read at the very beginning, it says, Now the whole earth had, how many languages? One language. One language. So what's going on here? Right? We, just talk, we just heard about all the languages that were out there, and now you're saying that there was one language. And some people want to cry foul, say, Hey, this, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, Genesis 11 is not chronological to Genesis 10. Okay? And the Bible does this throughout, um, even the way it's categorized. It's not categorized chronologically, it's categorized by genre. Okay? It's important understanding when you come to the Bible, or maybe it looks like a contradiction from the surface, but when we actually study the literature and how they wrote in those days, it's not. Because what Moses is doing is he's zooming back. In Genesis 11, right? He's zooming back before the nations were dispersed, before all those languages came to be. He's zooming back to discuss how did those languages come to be, and why did those languages come to be. And as we read, the languages came to be because of sin and rebellion. It was a product of sin and rebellion. And we know that Moses is actually introducing right, another account of sin and rebellion in this fallen world because of what he says right after, talking about the one language. In verse 2 it says, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, your translation, and I think this is a better translation, is they traveled eastward. Eastward. So why is that important? Why is it important to make mention of the direction of where people are traveling? Well, the reason why is not just by, by geographical location. But in fact, every time that we have read throughout Genesis so far, every time we have read about somebody going east, it's because they're actually going away from God and his presence and his plan. It's not just a marker of geographical orientation, but more of it's a matter of where their heart and souls are directed towards. And that's away from God. To go east means to go away from God. It's highlighting something more spiritual than it is physically. 
And let me, let me show you a few examples. In Genesis 3.24, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, it says that they were sent eastward. Eastward. When Cain killed his brother in Genesis 4, it says that he went to the east in 4.16 to build his city. And so what Moses is doing, he's highlighting here that when the people went eastward, it was signifying or showcasing more of where their hearts were at. What was their desire of their hearts? And that was to flee God. And so as the story continues, we see that's exactly what they were trying to do. Let's continue reading in our Bibles. Look at verses 3 through verses 5. When it says they came, they said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then it says in verse 4, it says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And then importantly, at the end of verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we see their desire to build a city is not part of God's plan to cultivate the earth. In a sense, like, because there's nothing wrong in and of itself, right, to, to build a city, right, or to, to cultivate a certain land. Uh, we're, to, you know, Adam was commissioned to cultivate the land. It's, it's not inherently sinful to, right, to want to build a city or to, to, to settle down, right, and to set deep roots. But that last part of Genesis 4, I think, actually gives us what the underlying heart was actually communicating. Their deepest desire was to rebel against the very thing which God had commanded them to do. Even when it says that they wanted to reach the heavens in some way. right? They wanted to make a name for themselves. And they didn't want to disperse over all the earth. Well, what was the very thing which God actually commanded his people to do? What was the very first thing which God commanded Adam to do? Do you remember back in Genesis 1.28? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So when they're saying, hey, we're going to stop here because we do not want to fill the earth. We do not want to do what God has actually told us to do. We want to make a name for ourselves. We actually want to build something where we don't need God. That's essentially what they're saying. They desire to do the very opposite, to be completely self-sufficient. Saying, and this is me paraphrasing maybe at the heart level, them saying, we don't need God. We don't need his plan. We don't need what he has commanded us to do. We actually know better. Us building this is better. See, we don't need God to provide a way back to him, like he said in Genesis 3.15. We can actually do it right here with a bunch of bricks. See, we can get there on our own. We can be like God on our own terms. Remind you of something? Just like Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, where they wanted to be like God, but on their own terms. And they wanted to use the physical resources that God has given them, but not for God's glory, but their own. For their own purposes. Can you even see the mockery in the way that Moses even phrased this? When, the, when it says that they, they said, let us make this? Remember that language? 
That's the language of God. Right? So they're trying to hijack and say, let us. See, we can do this. We don't need the almighty, powerful creator, God. We can be God ourselves. Now, before we look at God's response, because it's important, we have to take a moment and go, you know, I'm not much better than they are. See, we can't look at these people in Shinar with this, this snobbery judgment, right? Or as C.S. Lewis would say, this chronological snobbery. When we look back at people, you know, in history and go, I would have never done that. It's ridiculous. How could they be so naive or ignorant? How could they look so foolish? I think we can do the very same thing, church. Right? Where we can take the life that God has given us. Right? We can take the very resources that God has given us and use them not to glorify him. Not to do what he's actually commanded us to do. Not to live unto him and for his glory primarily, but to glorify ourselves. Right? And we do this. You can do this with your job. You can do this with your family. You can do this with your wallet. And we can say, this all belongs to me. I deserve this. I know that ultimately this came from you, Lord, but you know what? I'm going to just kind of use this for my own purposes. And truthfully, one of the ways that I think our hearts are, are tempted by this as we start to get very busy, right? We start to do things and we go, I'm, 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 I got all these things on my plate, right? All these things on my calendar, all these things on my agenda. I'm too busy to actually think about, is this what God actually wants to give my life to? And so I think just like the people here with the Tower of Babel, what they were doing is they were not only saying, God, we don't need you. But I'm going to get so busy making this tower that I don't even have to think about if this is good for me or for your glory. Maybe a different time period. But I think we all can agree that our hearts still have the same temptation today. The same, the same temptation to be maybe too busy to think about just what God actually has for me. Or maybe it's just all, you know, outright rebellion going, yeah, I know what you said, but I don't care. And you know what the scary thing is, church, though? Because in a moment here, God's judgment is actually going to come, right? He's going to do something. He's going to intervene in their life. And God does that. He does that throughout history. But I think sometimes the more scary thing for me to think about is when God's wrath is actually passive instead of active. Active is when God intervenes like immediately into someone's life and going, there's, there's consequences for this sin. That's the active wrath of God. The passive wrath of God, and we also see this throughout Scripture, is when God says, okay, you want to pursue that? Go for it. I'm going to let you. I'm going to allow you to build and to build and to build and invest your whole life into something that's completely sinful or maybe completely rebellious. And then one day, when you die and you're standing before your maker, you realize 
it was all in vain. It was worthless. That's the passive wrath of God. When he says, you want to turn your back and go that way, I'm going to let you. And there's dire consequences for that. There's dire consequences on building your life on something that ultimately will not matter, church. And so these accounts are not just historical. Right? This is not just about the, the historicity of the Tower of Babel. But it's pointing to this deeply spiritual reminder of what do we give our lives to? What matters in the end? What's the ultimate goal of anything we do? Okay? And I do pray. I pray that for many of us, that maybe this, this Sunday or right now this season of life is God's actually revealing what a wasted life looks like. Because you're in one. And he's in his mercy, right? Because it's merciful for him to, to not give you just, you know, that passive wrath, but give you that active wrath and saying, this is not going where you think it's going. And just through his word and through his people, he's saying, come to me. Come to me. Get back to me. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who knows what your ultimate purpose in this life is. No matter what stage of life we're at, right? Right? Giving our lives to something is not just something that 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds should be thinking about. This is for us every single stage. Because I know for, for many of, of, of you in this room, right, you find yourself in a new season of life. Because maybe, maybe you've worked, you know, a, a hard job for numbers of years, and you're finding yourself now just with the ability to retire, and that's why you moved over here. Well, praise God. Praise God for that. And then, but don't just sit and waste it. If God has transitioned you into a new season of life, maybe with more resources, more time than you've ever had before, leverage that. Leverage it for things that matter. Don't waste these. These are good years for, for you guys. Just as much as they're important for me in my 30s. All right, let's keep looking at the text. Look over at verse 9. We see God's response. And there's some irony to his response in the way that Moses, I think, shows us. In verse 5, it says that the Lord came down to see the city in the tower which the children of man had built. Now, a couple of things that I want to highlight here is one is that Moses is intentionally using the language that God came down to see the tower. Now, pop quiz question, can God see everything on his throne in heaven? Yes. Yes. So, so why is Moses saying that God came down to see this tower? Well, there's a bit of irony there, right? Because they wanted to build this tower into the heavens, right? It's tops to reach the heavens. And when Moses is saying, no, you know what? It wasn't even close to the heavens. Not that you can physically, you know, even get there. But God had to come down to look at it. It was that small. So it's a little bit of a mocking of how small their tower was, and that wasn't even close to their intended goal. Now, the tower that they were building was likely an ancient uh, temple known as a ziggurat, 
Okay, you can you can Google this later. It's basically this, you know, rectangle or square temple that, as it moves inwards, it gets smaller and higher. Okay. I've heard that the Ark Encounter Museum is going to build another like ziggurat replica too. I don't know if that was an April Fool's joke. It's so hard, right? On April first, no, no, no. It's right or wrong. I hate it. I fall for it every time. So it might be a joke, but. These weren't very tall buildings. But I think what Moses is pointing out is this is not what they intended it to be. It was not going to do what they thought it was going to do. Because even additionally, when Moses says that the children of man had built it, that's speaking to something polemic. I've mentioned that when Moses is writing to these Israelites, who had only grown up mostly with hearing about Egyptian uh, culture or these near-ancient uh, historical accounts that were outside of, of you know, Genesis here. That's why he's writing this true account of how the world began. These ziggurats, these temples that were well-known in the near-ancient world, um, they were said to be, have been built by the gods, right? These little g gods. In some of these accounts, um, say that the ziggurats were built by the god of Marduk, right? You can read about this like in the Epic of Gilgamesh. That they were built by the gods, like the god of Marduk, and they claimed that these were then called the gates of God. The gates of God. So, then listen to kind of the, the punchiness of Moses' words when he says, no, no, no. These weren't built by gods as a gate of God. These were built by the children of man. They had nothing to do with the one and true God. You you guys hear that a little bit? It's punchiness saying, no, no, no. What you have been told, that's a lie. That's a lie. And then he continues to, Moses continues to show, "But, but let me tell you what God has done. And so, First, in verse 6, God actually gives a warning. Gives a, a warning that Moses records when he says that because these people were unified, right, in their rebellion against me, God was going to do something about it. Now, God was not worried that they were going to actually accomplish their goal, right? right? Build a tower to the heavens physically. He wasn't worried about that. So what does this language mean in verse 6? Well, it means that God knew that when... When a people group, or a nation, if you will, when they absolutely give themselves to rebellion and to turning their backs on God, they are capable of some egregious evil. That they can do things that would make our mouths drop, but they wouldn't even blink an eye at. And I don't think that we have to go far in history to see examples of that. When a people group or a nation decides to give themselves over into rebellion and what can be some of the consequences of that for those around. All right. But how does God respond? Well, one is he redeems back his own language. Right? When he says, let us. But he doesn't do so without power. He does so with complete power and authority. And he takes their unified language and he confuses it. 
He takes one language and he makes it dozens and dozens of languages. And the consequence of that is they're unable to communicate with each other, right? They're, they're flustered. And it says at the end of the day that they weren't able to actually finish the job in which they had. And then Moses makes the parenthetical note in some ways and says, now this place is called Babel because of its closeness to the Hebrew word, which means to babble, right? But Babel is also a historical place in the Bible. It's a real people. But it's also, it speaks to uh, a heart of a people, not necessarily from that, that region. Because how Babel will be used throughout scriptures, one is it will talk about a historical people, but it will also talk about the spirit of people. To have the spirit of Babylon, or the spirit of Babel. And to have that, it just means that you have a heart, and it's a, it's a group of people who have given themselves to the rebellion of God and his works and his plans for humanity. Okay? So sometimes in your Bible, when you read about Babel or Babylon, sometimes it's referring to this physical place, and sometimes it's referring to a kind of a, a, a theme or a, a mode of a, of a human heart that's collective in a bunch of different people. Okay? And then basically, the story just ends, right? It just ends at verse 9. It says, They were dispersed over the face of the earth. They did not complete their task. And then Genesis 10, or the rest of Genesis 11, rather, goes into talking about how God's plan through the line of Shem will continue to Abram, or what we refer to as Abraham. And we'll get there later on. But by and large, after verse 9, this ends what most historians call the primeval period of Genesis. So all of the history of the world before Abraham. Before Abraham. Because Moses has been focusing at humanity at large. And then as the, basically the next giant section of Genesis, which we'll get to later in the fall is tracing how the line of Abraham, or Abram to Abraham, it gets confusing, will continue through the book of Genesis. But in our context, I think Moses had an intention of kind of leaving a cliffhanger, if you will, when it says they were all dispersed. Sin was still prevailing through the earth, because if we don't see like this great promise, like we've seen in other portions of the book of Genesis end, right? We don't see this, this, these snapshots of what is to come. It just ends. And I think the reason why Moses did that is because he wanted that section to kind of have a curtain, if you will, to you go, okay, but now What? What's going to happen to all of these promises? What's going to happen to all these things from Genesis 3 through all the way through Genesis 11? What's going to happen there? Because we've seen a lot of promises. We've seen a lot of foreshadowing. And so when we get to that curtain in Genesis 11, what are we going to see? Well, for us, right? We're able to actually open up that curtain and continue, right, with the canon of Scripture. Where does God go with this? And where God goes with this is he goes to Jesus. 
And let me show you this. This is from 2 Corinthians 1.20. Because Genesis, I believe, is actually pointing us to Jesus. And this is one of the texts that I think reminds us of that. Where Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Him being Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. That is why, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So how is that possible? How are all the promises of God finding their yes in him? Well, just to end our time in in Genesis, let's think about this. Jesus is the greater Adam who did not fail in the garden and by whose perfect life and obedience will make eternal life possible for the rest of humanity. Jesus is the ultimate promised seed of Eve that will come to crush the head of Satan and undo this curse of sin and its consequences, though at great cost to himself. Jesus is the greater Noah, who will trust the plan of God in a world that's deep and ravaged with sin. Jesus is the promised ark of salvation, that through him and him alone will the greater judgment not destroy those who are in him. Jesus is the greater one who sits on the throne, who has the greater rainbow behind him. The greater reminder that God fulfills his promises. And when we see Jesus on his throne, it's a reminder that all the things in which he said will be accomplished, will be accomplished. Jesus is the greater foreshadow of Genesis 11. Where instead of building our way to God, it reminds us that God has to come down to us. That God, through the person Jesus, came down to us, but not to judge our works, but to live the life that we could not live and die the death we deserved by taking on the penalty for our sins. And Jesus, Jesus is the one who has the name above all names. The ultimate name that he didn't have to earn, but the name that was bestowed on him, Philippians says. To which the name of, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so we don't have to try to make a name for ourselves, church. By being in Christ, the ultimate name has already been named. And it's Jesus whom, after the resurrection, church, and hear this, this is really neat. After the resurrection, he sent his spirit at the day of Pentecost. Remember that in Acts 2? And began to reverse the curse of Babel and the languages. Even though the languages were still there, all of a sudden, instead of the languages driving people out and causing confusion, the languages are being redeemed for the central purpose of expounding the great gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then looking at the book of Revelation again, let me show you this. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. When John is getting this snapshot into the throne room of heaven, 
He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, Genesis is pointing forward to this greater day that the book of Revelation gives us a snapshot into, where all of a sudden all of these tribes, all of these nations are brought together again. All of the languages are being unified again to sing of one song, and that is salvation belongs to God and God alone. You see, church, Genesis 3 through 11, all of what we've been looking at for, I don't even know how long it's been, a couple months has been trying to get us to remind us that Jesus is who he said he is. To remind us that the hero of all of the Christian faith, the hero of all of Christian scripture, is the man, Jesus Christ. So we see from beginning to end, promises made, promises kept. If if you want to just divide your Bible, if you want to put a heading between Old Testament and New Testament, put on your Old Testament, promises made. New Testament, promises kept. Okay? It's a good way to think about the Bible. So how do we walk away from a story like this then? Right? How do we walk away from the, the story of the Tower of Babel? Well, one is I think we do so with great sobriety, knowing that we are capable of doing the very same thing. But also great gratitude that God has come down. That he has come down. Because like Babel, we would have never made it on our own. We would have never accomplished what we thought we would accomplish with our lives outside of him. We would have never accomplished us getting right with God on our own terms and our own ways. And that's why God had to come down and did so joyously. Because we would have wasted our life. And I'm sure of this. Wasted our life pursuing things that ultimately will never have accomplished what we thought they would have accomplished. But God, church. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ by grace. You have been saved, church. But God. See, the Tower of Babel in all of Genesis is pointing to this, this greater fulfillment, which we see in part now with Christ. And, right, and we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We're going to zoom kind of right from Genesis all the way into Jesus' person, life, death, and resurrection. But we do so with gracious hearts because of all the time we've spent in Genesis going, it seems really bad, and it was. And so like we read for our call to worship this morning, when it talked about how God came, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in that to the glory of God and our joy. Let's go ahead and just end there. I think I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. All right, let's go ahead and pray together. Well, Father, as we just end our time in your word, I'm thankful. 
I'm thankful that you are a God who cares about us. That despite our sin, despite our propensity for sin, which we're all guilty of, Lord. God, I thank you that you are a God who intervenes. That you are a God who says, you belong to me. And that you have revealed yourself. That you've allowed our our own hearts, our own minds to be able to behold the wondrous name that is Jesus Christ. And all the things which they were attempting to do at the Tower of Babel, Jesus, you accomplished on our behalf. You're the one who created the bridge. You're the one who made a name. You're the one who finished the rightful plan of God. And to that end, we are extremely grateful and want to worship you accordingly. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.